When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. My name is Anthony Ladon. This week we cover the famous street fight between Ned Stark and Jamie and 20 men with philosopher Jason Everill. Jason is a ethicist by trade. He teaches philosophy at St. Louis University. In addition to loving Game of Thrones, he's also a lover of science fiction, and he's actually published a bit on philosophical themes in science fiction. Steve and I will cover The Gods of Laws and Men. This is the famous Tyrion at Trial episode. By the way, I'm trying to get Steve to go with me to the February 2022 Game of Thrones convention in Las Vegas. And I'm thinking if we can get a critical mass together to see a Steve Osborne set at a local club, that he would absolutely go. So email me at book at baldmove.com if you think you might go to that convention and you'd be interested in seeing Steve on stage. Without further ado, here is Dr. Jason Everill. So, Jason, correct me if I'm wrong, but you read these books a while back, enjoyed the show, but you reading this particular chapter, probably the first time you've read it in a few years. Is that right? Yeah. You know, I'm a huge sci-fi nerd, as you heard from you know, a lot of the other books I've edited. Yeah, also, yeah. you know, fan of you know, fantasy genres like Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and that type of stuff. And and I had heard like you know of the books you know when you know they first came out back in the '90s and, um, but, but it, you know I never read them and um, and I didn't have HBO subscription at the time so I just started like oh you know I'll check this out at some point maybe when the series is done go back and, re- and watch it all. Long story short, I said okay before I watch the show I I want to read at least the first book and see if that draws me in because yeah I am a book guy yeah, yeah. and so I, I ordered a nice you know hard copy edition from Amazon it arrived I read the prologue by the end of the prologue I pull my phone back out go on Amazon I order the other four books and the first two seasons on blu-ray <laughs> <laughs> that's it yeah. the prologue I was, that's I all was it, it's all it just hooked you right in that person it's interesting I you know when we covered the prologue for this podcast I was I was talking to a, a literature person a friend of mine named Stephanie Barbie Hammer and I asked her if she thought that the prologue could work as a short story in and of itself and she said it absolutely can work as a short story and if you think about how a lot of these chapters go the way that martin writes each chapter almost has a feeling of this little vignette Mm -hmm. Um, but that prologue in particular does feel like it introduces the world in a very compelling way 
and yet, uh, you know, the way that it finishes, like a lot of good short stories will do, they will leave an opening to think, man, I, I, I would like to spend some more time with these people in this world, mm-hmm. um, which absolutely it sounds like it worked. Yeah, I always thought it'd be interesting, too, to, um, you know, if I reread the books one day to kind of just read like all the Eddard chapters and then just all the Catlin chapters, right? Just kind of. I thought about that too, but I, I and I actually have tried that. You know, sometimes we'll record out of order and I'll think, well, I'm just going to read the, you know, a, a few Ned chapters leading up to that recording or something. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't promise you that you won't miss a bunch of Ned stuff from someone else's perspective, right? Mm hmm. So this book in particular, this first novel in the series, it's pretty tight. And I think that there's, I think that Martin places the key details just so in just the right order. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So skipping around is not advantageous. Let me do a short synopsis of this chapter and we can uh, talk about some details. Sounds good. All right. So here's my synopsis. Ned, Jory, and Heward have followed Littlefinger to yet another brothel. This time, Robert's paramour is a young girl who still has affection for the king. The baby has black hair and Robert's nose. On their way back to the castle, Ned reflects more on Robert's other infidelities. The group of four riders is surrounded by 20 Lannister soldiers led by Jaime. Jaime interrogates Ned about Tyrion's capture, and Ned claims to have ordered it. Jamie calls for Ned to remain unharmed, but orders for his men to be killed. Littlefinger is allowed to slip away beforehand. Jory and Heward are cut down, and Ned's horse falls and pins his leg beneath. Ned blacks out, waking to observe the empty streets and then Pycelle's face. He is given milk of the poppy as Pycelle tends to his broken leg. So, Jason Eberle, would you like to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or shall you and I just climb the ladder of chaos? I'm always about ladders of chaos. <laughs> Good. All right, ladders of chaos. I have a few ideas about this chapter, but I'd like to hear you kind of ramble on a little bit. You have some experience studying the medieval world. And I guess I'm curious, are you seeing things in this chapter that the rest of us mortals don't see because we don't have a, a history with medieval literature like you do? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Yeah, I um so yeah, it's interesting when you study, you know, anything from the medieval period. And again, I I, I do a lot of medieval philosophy. So there, you know, you're you're more just interested in the ideas being presented and, and debated and argued for. Um but then you also read a lot of ancillary literature and histories and biographies mm. and so on. And one of the things that resonates to me, you know, when the series first started, of course, you see all the all the sex, all the violence, and people are like, oh, that's so gratuitous and so on. Mm-hmm. And my reaction was, I mean, that's how it would have been. It would have been bloody and awful and painful and and of course, this is a fictional, you know, Westeros context, but it, it's supposed to echo the, uh, you know, our own medieval world. Mm. It's always a balance, isn't it? Because as a storyteller, you have a particular audience in mind and you have to sort of cater to the sensibility of that audience. You know, in addition to that, you also do want to make moral decisions as you're telling the story. And then there's always that fallback, yeah, but let's, let's make sure that we are authentically representing 
this period with a different set of ethics than maybe we have. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, it's it's always a little bit of a, a tricky dance, I think. No, I agree. It, is, it definitely is tricky because you know you don't want it to be gratuitous, right? And certainly, maybe those early seasons and 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 even the book. I mean, the book, as you know, you well know, is way more graphic at times than the series. All this the point being is, like I said, is it merely to shock the audience, to shock their sensibilities, mm-hmm. or is it merely to depict what well, this is how it would have been, or is it maybe to show some consequences of this type of world? You know, the the further you go back in history the kind of closer you get to what the philosopher Thomas Hobbes described as a state of nature, right? Hmm. Uh, the, the state of, of existence outside of civilization, without laws, without a morality, where it's just a war of all against all. And life, Hobbes says, in that state would be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Right. And of course, we've never lived necessarily in such a world, except maybe in prehistoric times, Hobbes's point being is that without the the laws and mores of, of civilization, however we define those laws and mores, whatever we mean by civilization, but we need some sort of governance. And of course, Westeros is a is a civilization. They have laws, they have mores, but it's still a little bit more kind of medieval, wild slash wild west type. Even in this chapter, you get the sense that Ned's title, Hand of the King, would have protected him from this attack mm-hmm. just days previous and then he eschews the title he casts off the title and immediately he's vulnerable to this attack it's almost like they're living the, the people in Westeros are living in a world where there's this really fine line between deathly peril and so what would be considered sort of a cultural taboo you know, and it's this little these little taboos that will keep people alive. You know, it's like it's not it's not okay to kill your own father. All right, well that guy's okay from this set of people, but then if he leaves his house, you know, he's pretty much in in danger of anyone killing him. In the medieval world, they um, they used a term that we use a lot, you know, today, but we mean something a little bit different by it. And the term is uh, dignity, or you know, dignitas in in Latin, and you know, when we talk about dignity today, right, that term gets thrown all around and especially in my my realm of bioethics debates about, you know, dignity of the person and death with dignity and so on. And we typically mean something that, you know, the philosopher Immanuel Kant in the 18th century meant by dignity, which is some sort of intrinsic value, some sort of inestimable worth, right? Human beings, persons, you can't put a value on us, right? You can't weigh our lives in the in the balance. Everyone's just as valuable as everyone else. But that's not what the medievals meant when they used the term uh, dignity. Um, they and this is the, going back to the Roman Empire. The term, the Latin term dignitas, would refer to like the dignity you have of an office, right? So, like even today, we would say like, the dignity of the office of the presidency, right, in the U.S. And whether particular presidents live up to that dignity or not. Right. right. And so you got the, the dignity of the person and the dignity of the office. And so, like you said, with Ned, you know, yeah, his office as hand of the king gave him a certain dignity, a certain moral status. And, and he's he, got to live up to the status of the office in a way that he, he might not have to if he didn't have the office. 
Correct. Which is raises also interesting questions about, yeah, what the nature of that office is in particular and what the dignity of that office means, right? Mm. So you're the hand of the king, which in one sense means, you know, you are an extension of the king's authority. You're like the vicar of the king, right? And in, in, in ecclesiological context, right, we talk about like the pope is the vicar of Christ or there's vicars in the Anglican church and so mm. on, right? The idea is that you you're not the you're not the king but you just as much represent the king and the king's authority yet when we see the various hands of the king starting from john aaron you know through ned and Tyrion and so on they all have their own agendas and their own conscience Hmm, hmm. and they sometimes go against the king and ned tried to push that line when robert is you know plotting to kill daenerys and when he reaches the point, he's like, yeah, I can't represent you anymore. I can't be your hand. Mm. And probably with full knowledge, because of course he he knew what Catelyn had captured Tyrion and everything, he probably knew he was opening himself up to the very type of attack that he experienced, right? He he exercised his own conscience, his own, you know, dare I say, his own dignity as a person, right? Mm. His moral dignity in that Kantian sense, uh, assuming the dignity of his office. So I'm curious about this. Uh, you know, this is sort of a a chapter that supposes a few things about bastards uh, that are a little bit different in this context than we would consider that in our context. But let me ask you a question this way. In that medieval sense of the idea, does a bastard have dignity in this context? Yeah. Because there is a particular role that a bastard of a high lord should play or ought to play in the in the right kind of context, right? Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. To be honest, I'm not so knowledgeable of medieval history to say definitively, you know, especially you know, especially across different cultures, right? French, Germanic, British, um, you know, exactly what status bastards would have had in all those contexts, but. I believe as a general statement, it's fair to say that just as Game of Thrones depicts, yeah, being a bastard, it's a juridical claim, right? It, it kind of has this moral connotation, right? That, uh, you know, you know, someone, you know, had a child outside the boundaries of marriage. And to the extent that Game of Thrones religious culture somewhat mimics the Western European Judeo-Christian culture of the medieval period, this is a, an immorality, but on the other hand, it's more like a juridical thing. It's more like, yeah, you're you're it's you're you're you were born or conceived outside the boundaries of the law, right? The mm-hmm. legally provided for marriage. It's not so much a moral thing, born in sin or something like that. And so because you're kind of outside those jurisdictional boundaries, and given that it's a society where certain offices are handed on through familial lines, then yeah, you kind of have to have these these laws to govern, you know, who's in who's where in the order of succession, right? Because this is going to impact a lot of people's lives, right? Whoever the next king or queen is has a huge impact on on everybody's life in Westeros uh, in the Seven Kingdoms, and so yeah, you have to have some order, you have to have some rules. Otherwise, every time a king or queen dies. You're just going to have, again, a sort of Hobbesian war, as has happened in Game of Thrones history, to determine who wins by usurping the throne, basically. And so so that gives order, gives stability to kind of have this, again, line of succession and these legal boundaries. And yeah, within that, bastards can have a status 
and they can move from being a bastard born to becoming basically naturalized through a legal process. So, mm. uh, so yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting status uh, that bastards have, but right. it's also just the, the importance of bloodlines too. Try this on for size. I don't know if I, if I agree with myself on this point. Um, but one could say that a bastard in this context would have more freedom, individualistic freedom, than you know the son the the oldest son of a high lord or something because the oldest son of a high lord has to live up to the the dignity of his father's office right in a way that the bastard doesn't have to but is that a wrong-headed way to go at it because there are just different expectations of a bastard yeah um a lot of that depends on what the bastard's relationship to their father you know their parents primarily their father is right Mm -hmm. and it seems that that is very much in the hands of the father right um to kind of determine are they going to again claim the bastard like obviously robert's not claiming any of his bastard children he knows they exist but they have no status um whereas obviously john snow has status as what's as being publicly known, at least as Ned's bastard, and, and other bastards that we see in the in the book and, and the series again have have a sort of role to play, as you said. But I also agree that that while on one hand their status is kind of at the whim of of their how their father, you know, kind of owns them or not or gives mm-hmm. them uh, yeah. some role. On the other hand, I think you're also right that they do have that more freedom because when when people have lower expectations of you, um, then you don't have to do as much to impress them unless you want to mm-hmm. kind of aspire to that higher office. Robert's another great example of this. I think Robert would have been much happier as a second son or a bastard or someone who could just go across the narrow sea and be a sellsword somewhere, you know, and he can mm-hmm. just do whatever he wants. In many ways, Robert hates the dignity of his own office because he knows he's not well suited for it. Um, Ned, on the other hand, so we should talk about Ned here. Yeah. Here we have someone who seems to, you know, be very well suited for his own office in this as Lord of Winterfell. You know, not, not really raised to do so. That was supposed to be his older brother. But Ned is casting off his own desires, his own sense of, you know, personhood, because he's going to allow this Lord of Winterfell title to define him, and he's not going to dishonor that title. Mm-hmm. And yet, Kiri uh, is very not well-suited as Hand of the King, I think. So much so that he has to just forfeit. He just has to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And and this, of course, goes really badly for him. Yeah, Ned had a certain degree of autonomy yeah. as Lord of Winterfell, right? And not only in running it and governing it, so to speak, but also... It's his own code. I mean, when he's put in the yeah, this in situation of King's Landing, where the mores are different, where the office of the king and the hand of the king, you have different rules. You send assassins to do your work now, to do your killing. That you know, among other, the fact that the person being targeted is a fourteen-year-old pregnant girl, completely offends Ned's moral sensibilities. Yeah, it's kind of a red line for Ned. It's like uh, you know, the, there's there is such an idea for Ned as sort of a a well-met 
opponent in battle or a good kill or something like that, right? And then he has this, you know, these foibles about, you know, what would be considered to be, um, to, to lack dignity, I, I suppose. The kind of, a kind of, something that, you know, we have this distinction between execution and murder in our country, right? Mm-hmm. I think Ned very much has something along those lines. Yeah, no, I think very much too. There, there's, I'm also reminiscent here to uh, of Star Wars when George Lucas vented the concept of the Jedi Knights and that they fight with lightsabers uh, versus using blasters and so on. And it's and and he puts that line in the mouth of Obi Wan Kenobi when when he's presenting Luke with with his father's lightsaber. He says, "You know, an elegant weapon from a more civilized age." Right. So this notion that there's there's this romanticism about personal combat and and a sure. fair fight between worthy opponents versus you know blowing up a planet with this death star or something like that so and i think we see the same thing right in game of thrones where and, and also just in human history right where the further you remove d- death from the person causing death and and you know the the culmination of that today is like drone warfare right there's a really good movie called um eye in the sky and without going to the whole story of the film uh aaron paul of breaking bad fame he plays a drone pilot who's asked to strike at this terrorist compound where these terrorists are gathering but knowing that a bunch of civilians in the surrounding area will also likely be killed by the you know collateral damage as they say mm. in the military and his this bothers his conscience and so the point being is that yeah this kind of where killing someone becomes a video game basically right he's in a trailer in las vegas right uh, nellis air force base killing people on the other side of the globe and so this all goes back to right this this notion of looking your opponent in the eye and the sense of honor you know killing is still killing killing is 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 never good sometimes it can be justified mm. but it, so then contrast this now with jamie right and when Jamie sort of ambushes Ned and his men and very cavalierly says to dispatch his men as a, as a lesson to humble him, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's no purpose to this killing, right? There's no goal to be gained. It's not an honorable kill, not to mention the fact that uh, I can't remember exactly if it seems to how many men Jamie had, but it seems like Ned and his men are outnumbered. Oh, yeah, totally. There's, yeah. you know, Ned has two men and, and Jamie is one of 20 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And and then, and that's the way it's depicted in the, in the series as well, right? They're just totally outnumbered. And so, yeah, it's not an honorable kill. It's not worthy opponents. It's just a slaughter. Here's a question for you. Maybe it's unanswerable, but I, I'm curious to see how you deal with this. Jason, why does Ned lie? He lies here. You know, Jamie says, my brother, you probably remember my brother. He seems to have some trouble along the road. And Ned says, yes, I ordered him to be captured, you know, to answer for his crimes or something like that. Mm -hmm. But we know that Ned did not order that. So then here's a question to you. Why, Why would Ned claim that he did order that if he didn't? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, so, I mean, on the, on the one hand, a charitable reading of, of that would be to say that, well, in a sense, anything Catelyn does, you know, because of the relative status of women in Westerosian culture compared to men, Catelyn has very little authority, like legalistically, to act in her own name, right, in her own person. And 
as Catelyn's husband, you know, he kind of has ultimate authority. And so it's, it's kind of like, you know, the captain of a ship, right? Everything that happens on the ship is the captain's responsibility. And so mm. anything Catelyn or really any member of his family does in terms of at least Ned's sense of honor, probably to his own conscience, like it redounds on him. So even though he didn't order Catelyn to do it, because she did it, it's on his, it's on his, so he's, it's more his taking responsibility. So that's maybe kind of his own, maybe subjective sense of, of morality. On the other hand, there's then the politics of it. And Ned is at least a, enough of a political animal to realize that A, as the former hand of the king, as Robert's friend, he can probably take the heat <laughs> in a way that Catelyn can't, right? I mean, he, he's just trying to protect her, I think, right? He, well, yeah, I guess th- I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. So I think we may have a both-and situation here. I think that there mm-hmm. is an element here where because of the dignity of his office as the, the husband, he kind of has to take the responsibility for his wife's actions. And yet, I think that there would be some sort of almost emasculation if he admits that he doesn't have control over his own wife. Mm. So I think that there's something about this ideal of masculinity that he's living up to that would be damaged if he were to admit that his wife has you know, taken Tyrion mm-hmm. without his say-so. Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. I hadn't thought about that. but And as a, much of a paragon of virtue as Ned comes across as, he, yeah, he's still a fallible human being like all of us. And as a man, yeah, especially in that world, has a certain sense of masculinity, whether it's personal pride, which certainly is part of it, but also, again, there's the, the, the political angle of this, right? He has to maintain his status. Um, yeah. If, if he's going to have authority, if people are going to listen to him, if he's, and even without the authority of the office of hand of the king anymore, he still has his own personal authority, right? He's still a very well-respected person, um, which is part of the reason Robert, right, wants to recruit him. And so, and so kind of maintaining that, that public dignity, again, that word again, yeah, kind of requires that he not allow himself to be emasculated in the way you just described. So you per, again, this personal pride as a man, sure. Uh, and that's, that's probably definitely part of it. But I think there's also this, yeah, this political necessity of uh, maintaining face, Right. Yeah. Right. I think as we've been introduced to Ned uh, in several of these chapters, he's often he's often contrasted with Littlefinger. There, those two are almost polar opposites in a number of ways. And even in this chapter, you know, when when Littlefinger's in a brothel, it's like a fish in water, and <laughs> and you get the sense that you know Ned is a little bit. Uh, you know, he's going to get in, he's going to interview who he needs to interview, and he's going to leave. That's, you know, that's the kind of dignity in the modern sense that, that Ned has. And Littlefinger, he's going to, you know, he's going to make body jokes. He's going to be fast and loose with what he says about people gossip-wise. He really is contrasted in, in many ways with Ned. And yet, when it comes down to it... Ned is this paragon of virtue. He's willing to lie because that's what needs to happen in that moment. And I wonder if Littlefinger kind of is is meant to be something of a bizarro Ned mm. to show how how straight laced and how dignified Ned actually is. 
I guess another way to say it is is the the lie stands out to me because Ned has been painted as this paragon of virtue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't make any difference if if Littlefinger lied. I wouldn't even notice it. I just think, <laughs> right. yeah, that's that's what Littlefinger does, right? I can even separate the lies from the truth with him. But when Ned lies, it's like okay, now that's a question I want to talk to Jason about because that that's significant. Yeah. So yeah. So let, first of all, I think everything you said is exactly right about uh, I'm not conceived of him that way, but that's definitely how I'm going to kind of picture Littlefinger now um, <laughs> as as Bizarro Ned. I think Bizarro that's, that's Ned. yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, and just to create a bring another point of contrast, one of the I think Littlefinger, uh, another person you can compare him to and to Ned would be Varys. Like, Varys is almost kind of in the, in the middle between them. And, I, and I'm bringing this up in order to kind of now create this, yeah, three-point contrast. And then a, and to talk about, yeah, the ethics of lying, right? So a lot of ethicists, a lot of moral philosophers and theologians consider lying to be intrinsically bad, right? It's bad in and of itself, you know, Immanuel Kant goes so far as to say, you can't lie, even if it's to save another person's life, right? Mm. Even that, you're doing something inherently wrong. And we can never do things that are inherently wrong, even if it's to serve some good purpose, right? So, again, there's philosophers today who still you know, kind of defend that kind of extremist, you know, absolutist view about the, the wrongness of lying. And then the opposite end of the spectrum in, in terms of ethical theories, you have what's called utilitarianism, right? Or consequentialism, where there are no intrinsically right or wrong actions. There's, it's just always about the consequences that we're aiming to produce. And are we producing good consequences or bad consequences? And in that view, it doesn't even matter what your motive is. You could have like totally nefarious motives, evil motives, but as long as in the end, what you produce is something good, mm that's okay right and then in the middle and i'm and mind you i'm i'm painting in very broad strokes here right but in the middle you you have virtue theory going back to aristotle and other theories where yes the consequences matter and yes there are certain types of actions we shouldn't shouldn't do but what's most important is your moral character are you the type of person do you have the right dispositions what again aristotle calls virtues um, or the, the opposite being vices, these inculcated habits of thinking and acting that will lead you to do the right actions and to produce the best consequences under the right circumstances. And so, again, it's kind of, again, painting in very broad strokes, kind of this middle road between the extremes of, of this absolutism we get from Kant and this utilitarianism which in itself is kind of an absolutist theory because we absolutely must always produce the greatest good for the greatest number of people but it's not absolutist in the sense that there are no again intrinsically right or wrong actions right it just depends on the circumstances yeah yeah so with that let me let me just quickly talk yeah the three characters here right little finger has no virtue whatsoever right he's always <laughs> just he, he lies he schemes he does whatever he wants only to serve his own purposes, right? His own power, right? He's the most Machiavellian of the characters, yeah. right? Probably in the series. In fact, he'll go so far as to create chaos, right? Mm-hmm. And then 
it may or may not benefit him, but he's going to try to make it benefit. Like it's it's not like he's calculating the damage before he creates the damage. He's just going to create the a maximum amount of damage and then figure out what to do with it after the fact, right? Yeah, in that respect, he's kind of like um, the the Joker, particularly as portrayed in, in Nolan's The Dark Knight, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, he's a you chaos know? agent, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so contrast, you know, Littlefinger with Varys, who also freely lies, schemes, right, plants, you know, ru- spreads rumor and innuendo. And I think there's definitely some self-servingness to Varys's mo- motivations. I'm, you know, these characters are not one-dimensional, right? That's why we like them. We're, we're invested in them, right? They have mul- multifaceted motivations and they're not, none of them are morally perfect. Um, but in the end, as the story progresses, right, you, you know, fast forwarding, you know, Varys is ultimately wanting to do what's best for Westeros, wanting to to serve the Seven Kingdoms, right? Yeah, I I agree with you. I I do think that Varys really does have a consequentialist view in mind, almost utilitarian, because he's worried about the commoners. Like, mm-hmm. I think he thinks, okay, this lie will prevent that war, mm-hmm. right? So this lie. You know, while it's maybe unpalatable, it's far better than, you know, a thousand commoners dying in this next war or something like that. Exactly right. So, you know, so we can, you know, kind of label Littlefinger as, I mean, he's not even utilitarian because he's really, he's not even looking for the greatest good for everyone. You know, Littlefinger is an unvirtuous or vicious egoist right Mm -hmm. he's just serving his own ends and there are philosophers right to who defend ethical egoism as really the right way to act if you look at the reigns of you know Anne rand and so on Mm -hmm. um whereas Varys would be you know this kind of virtuous utilitarian right this virtuous consequentialist and then then we get to ned and on the one hand it would seem like yeah ned maybe falls into this more absolutist camp right of you know always doing your duty no matter what and so on but he also has a you know a sense of the you know the greatest good for the greatest number and and the the need to be flexible and that we can't be absolutely rigid in the application of all of our moral duties so there's a a version of kantian ethics called um prima facie deontology which is a Latin term, so now we're getting medieval again, um, which means, you know, on first glance, right, on, on the face of things. On the face of things, you ought to tell the truth. On the face of things, that mm. you know, will tell the truth. But when there's a conflicting moral duty, right, the duty to safeguard his wife, the duty to preserve his uh, his masculine dignity, right, as we were talking about earlier. Or the... Uh- the preservation of Jon Snow's identity or something like that. Exactly. So, yes, yeah, are you saying then, Jason, are you saying that uh, Ned is not a deontologist? Yeah, if we're going to use those labels, uh, at, or at the very least, he would be a prima facie deontologist, okay. not a Kantian <laughs> absolutist. <laughs> All right. Okay. And, 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 you know, just to finish this thought, I you know, one way of, kind of a measuring the moral value of, of at least Ned's character is the fact that in telling these lies, he's taking a, a, at least a potential, if not actual cost to himself, right? Hmm. In this sense, by, by saying he ordered it, he's taking the heat off of Catelyn 
and open himself up to the type of attack that he and his men then endure, right, from Jamie. And in terms of the, the lie of Jon Snow's identity, he has to suffer in his own marriage and cause, you know, cause pain to Catelyn, but also suffer pain himself by the loss of trust that, he, you know, she would have lost naturally after being made aware of his, of his adultery. So that's the thing. He tells lies, but they're lies that are ultimately costful to him. And to me, that kind of, you know, shows, again, his virtue and is indicative that these lies are, are you know, justifiable. I've got one more question for you, Jason. So, Liana, he, okay, Ned is recalling a exchange he's had with Liana. Liana actually gets a speaking role in this. Yeah, that's that's kind of a rare occurrence. Yeah, yeah. yeah let, let me read this little part here. It says, after a time, Littlefinger quieted as they rode in silence. The streets of King's Landing were dark and deserted. The rain had driven everyone under their roofs. It beat down on Ned's head, warm as blood and relentless as old gilts. Fat drops of water ran down his face. Robert will never keep to one bed, Lyanna had told him at Winterfell, on the night long ago when their father had promised her hand to the young lord of Storm's End. I hear he has gotten a child on some girl at the Vale. She also says, Love is sweet, dearest Ned but it cannot change a man's nature. So here we have young Liana, but saying things that are maybe wise beyond her years. She seems to have seen Robert's true nature uh, somehow. So, you know, whatever exposure she has to, to Robert, she has this sense that Robert is a philanderer and he will always be a philanderer. Mm-hmm. So here's my question to you, Jason. Do you think that's true? Do you think that the nature of man doesn't change all that much? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up because that line jumped out to me as well as rereading this. Not only because, like I said, it's this flashback, a speaking part for Liana when, again, especially when you think about the the ways depicted in the HBO series, right? Liana's mentioned but never appears until the final season that's right right. that's right and and so it's it's significant you know that she's popping up here in the book this way and yeah that line also particularly jumped out at me right cannot change a man's nature and so here i'll I'll, I'll take us back to aristotle and right so aristotle develops this theory of moral habitude let's call it the idea that he says no one is born inherently virtuous or vicious right we're born as sort of moral blank slates and through how we're raised by our families through the education we receive through the type of moral exemplars that we're exposed to especially as young children through the laws and mores of of the society in which we're raised that you kind of shape the the sort of collective moral conscience of our society virtues become inculcated you know, it's like cultivating a plant, right? You have to keep watering it. You got to keep feeding it. You got to keep exposing it to sunlight. And if you don't kind of keep it up and cultivate these virtues, the, these habits of thinking and acting in people, then either A, the virtues will kind of wither just as the plant withers, or B, you know, weeds spring up and you got, those are vices, right? So you mm-hmm. can cultivate virtuous habits or vicious habits, right? If you're exposed to the wrong moral exemplars. Uh, I read this 
really an interesting book a while back. I was teaching a course on um, ethics and the Holocaust, and the book was called uh, The Nazi Conscience. And the first thing that the author points out in the book is this seems like an oxymoron, but it's not. And not in the sense that the Nazis had a good conscience, they had a terribly malformed conscience, but the point is that all human beings have a conscience. We all act based on what we personally believe is the right thing to do, but those personal beliefs are shaped by our surrounding culture, our surrounding society. Yeah, somehow there was a, a structure set in place that made something like the Holocaust possible. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and it was very, you know, engineered by, you know, Joseph Goebbels, right, the Minister of Propaganda, what, you know, what they expose children to in schools and so on. Mm. Um, again, that's a whole complicated history we can get into. But all this is to say that once one has formed certain habits, whether they're virtues or vices, it's not impossible, but it becomes very difficult to break them. Right. And, and of course, the more we learn about neurobiology, right? So we can fast forward from, you know, over 2000 years ago from classical wisdom to modern scientific understanding. And we understand that certain neurochemical patterns in our brains shape certain patterns of thought and, mm-hmm. and behavior so that some things, as Aristotle said, become second nature. Leon, the wisdom that Liana is tapping into, right? So if we're, again, we're, if we're labeling characters, um, I would say Liana is an, is an Aristotelian here, right? She's, <laughs> she's a, she's a, at least yeah. has the same insight as Aristotle that, yeah, once a man like Robert has cultivated certain habits of, of, of philandering and so on, it is... It's not impossible, but it's going to be very hard for him to change that. And what's interesting, too, about this, you know, in this short little, you know, paragraph is, you know, Liana's acceptance of this. I mean, she's kind of forced by her society to accept it. Again, as I said, you know, she'd been promised by her father, her hand to the young Lord of Storm's End. So she doesn't have any choice here. So she's resigned, again, to kind of to that fate. Mm -hmm. I would also say, too, this raises an interesting question, you know, about kind of almost we can call it the function of brothels in this type of society because they do, they provide, and again, this is not to at all ethically justify the sex trade or anything like that, but just noting that at least in this culture, in this society, and again, this is true of human societies throughout history, right? The oldest profession, as they say, that there's a certain function that these brothels provide because it's a discreet place for men to have these liaisons, have their needs met, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, married or not. And it's all, you know, as we would say today on the DL, right? But, and then this is kind of the the issue, the next chapter, right, where, where Robert and Cersei are talking with, with Ned and Ned says something like, this girl just wants you, like she, she cares about you. She thinks you're going to come back and take care of her and her child. And Robert says something like, well, I thought the girl would have you know, more sense than that. And I can't remember if it was, I think it's Cersei at that point, basically says, you impregnated this basically teenage girl who's uneducated, works in a brothel, and you think she would have more sense? <laughs> like, right. yeah. you know. What, what, it, yeah, what are you thinking? But then, but, but the girl herself, she's kind of not playing by the rules, right? Right. Unlike, the the it, function of the brothel is to, well, it keeps the rest of the city appearing clean, right? Mm-hmm. Because as long as there's a shadow and then the bad stuff is done in the shadow, then we can really pretend that everyone else is virtuous, right? Mm-hmm. 
No, exactly, exactly right. Um, and again, I'm reminded going back to medieval times here, both St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, right? And I, I say saints just to emphasize, right, their status as these revered mm-hmm. uh, Christian sure. luminaries and theologians and philosophers. They both thought that while any sexual activity outside of marriage was, you know, sinful and so on, they both said, and basically Augustine said it and Aquinas just cites Augustine approvingly in this point, says that um, prostitution in their respective societies should be tolerated as something legal because they feared that if it weren't, worse things would happen. That's interesting. And, and that's, that's a very, not a lot. That's not too much different than the modern argument for the legalization of the sex trade. Yeah. No. And, and other things as well. Right. Mm, interesting. So a few notable introductions in this chapter. Bara. Bara was what the girl named the baby. I guess the, the person who oh. runs the brothel is called Shataya. Mm-hmm. And we hear about uh, for the first time. Uh, Jamie's captain named uh, Tregar. Yeah, I've, I think I mentioned the other ch- in the other Ned chapter. Yeah, his, his head got bashed in, but he got bashed in. I, did did yeah. he survive? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. All right. Anyway, so those were the some a few introductions, and then notably, there's a major book difference here. In that, in the show, what happens is Ned is surrounded. And Jamie hops off the, his horse for single combat with Ned. Mm-hmm. And then one of Jamie's uh, henchmen, I guess, sort of maims Ned from behind. Like he clips right. his thigh or his calf or something like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this depiction in the book, Jamie is going to let Ned go. He's going to let Ned go unharmed back to the in fact he he commands his his men don't harm ned but kill his men and then ned trying to defend his men gets hurt in the scuffle because the horse falls and then he's under the horse and it breaks his leg so the way that ned's leg gets maimed is different in the book than in the show so i thought that was a major difference and i don't know why maybe it's maybe it's just more costly to to <laughs> to use a horse in that way in the i don't know why they decided to make that different but yeah um that, that and like i said this is, is a significant difference and to me it makes jamie even though he's, it's a villainous episode in terms of jamie's actions but on the other hand you see the justification right he's defending his he's defending his brother who and that's always been one of you know jamie's kind of virtues right is that he's always stood by Tyrion, right um when you know cersei hated him and you know mm-hmm. other most of society dismissed him right as the imp right his own father right you yeah. know couldn't stand him but you know jamie always stood up for Tyrion, and so that's you know that's a virtuous thing in his part of course that's family honor and all that stuff as well well it's also a it, measured but. response it's like you took Tyrion, or at least you claim to have taken Tyrion. You haven't killed him yet, so I'm not going to respond by killing you. I'm going to kill your men. It's almost like there's this measured response. Mm-hmm. It's like a tit for tat sort of thing, where it's on you know you you took my bishop. I'm gonna I'm gonna take your bishop. Something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, and um, I remember from watching West Wing, right? The I was introduced to the phrase uh, a proportionate response. Yeah, right? famously that was in one of the earliest episodes. 
Yeah. You know, what what is the virtue of a of a proportionate response? <laughs> and and is a proportionate response always right a life for a life? Or right. can it be, you know, again the the overall pragmatics of what's going to lead to better overall consequences. But but yeah, just going back to that scene and, and how they do the series. So, you know, so you have Jamie's motivations you know, are pretty much the same in both contexts. In and then yeah, the, in the book, he leaves, kill his men, spare Ned, right? That seems proportionate. But then in the series, again, we were talking earlier about the, sort of the honor of personal combat and looking your opponent in the eye. And so even though he's more setting out to potentially harm or even kill Ned in that scene, he's going to do it himself, at least until his you know man comes around and kind of, does, and I don't know mm-hmm. if that was like, I guess it could still come across as bad if that was kind of like planned, intentional. Well, later or... on, Tywin even confronts him and says, why did you let him live? And he said it wouldn't have been clean. In other words, mm. Jamie's got this idea that, you know, because Ned was clipped, now it's not a fair fight anymore. Right. Where in the book, you really get the sense, and, and the key to this is the fact that Jamie gives the order to leave Ned unharmed, and then he rides away. It's almost as if, hey, whatever happens to Ned at this point, it's it's off. You know, I can be, I can deny responsibility. Right. I, notice- I wasn't even there. I ordered them to to not let them him be harmed, so I cannot be held responsible for this. And not only that, he not only rides away like from the scene, he goes to Casterly Rock. Right. You know, he leaves King's Landing altogether. That's right. It's kind of interesting. So it's like just, you know, really removing himself, you know, from the situation. Um, So that, so I I guess all this to say is to me, Jamie comes across as more, you know, dastardly in the book (laughs) than the way he's depicted in the series, the way they rewrote the scene. Yeah. Or you could, you could say, look, that, that was a better strategic move, what he did in the book. Right, yeah. Dastardly, yes, but also right. strategically probably smarter. No, yeah, granted, definitely, definitely. <laughs> but uh, but interesting too, you know, the later scene where you mentioned, you know, the conversation with Tywin and the, whether the kill be clean or not. Again, we can read that in a couple different ways, right? One is the kill wouldn't be clean, like it would be dishonorable, you know, and I care about my honor and morals, but also just in the sense of, Again, that more like that public, not personal honor, my own personal sense of honor, but the, how I perceive publicly. If people have heard, right, that I, Jamie Lannister, one of the greatest swordsmen, right, the Kingslayer, that I killed a maimed man, like, that's going to look bad. Yeah. So on the one hand, we can say, okay, oh, he's being honorable here. He only, only if it was a clean kill. But it's also just kind of like, well, what do people think? Like, oh, great, Jamie Lannister killed a wounded man. Big deal. <laughs> <laughs> I've often thought about Jamie in terms of Nietzsche's Ubermensch mm. in the sense that he he really views himself as something of an artist and he doesn't live by the rules of everyone else. In fact, he really does view himself as this creature who has evolved beyond the rest of, you know, the rest of people's stupid so- social mores. But he has this internal sense of right and wrong. Like he's going to do right by his own virtue, his own sense of like what it would mean to be the best swordsman in the land. And 
So he still has this sense of like a clean kill and whatnot, but he doesn't care really what anyone else thinks of him. He doesn't care to like correct his reputation as a Kingslayer because, of course, who cares what the sheep think? Mm-hmm. He's a lion, that, that kind of thing. No, I, I think that's an astute observation. I never thought of it that way. But yeah, the, the, the sense that, yeah, he's beyond the the normal social mores of good and evil. And, and yeah, I, I, it's always been interesting to me. I think it's probably important, especially in the books, to kind of note when the term Kingslayer is used. Like, who's using the term? Yeah, yeah. Is Jamie hearing them use the term, ref- uh-huh. you know, to him? How does he react if he does? Like, you know, that that's definitely gonna be something that you know when i get around to rereading these books that i'm going to be paying a, a close attention to yeah it's interesting there's there's this one uh exchange between he and cat where she said that the hells there are hells of course and they exist for men like you and his response is there are there are no men like me there's only me yes right so he really does view himself as sort of this breed apart you know, he's a singular artist in, in sort of this muck and mire of, of you know, lower creatures. Anyway, he's he's such an interesting character, uh, it, both in the books and in the show. I, I, I that character has always fascinated me. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think one of the outcomes of this way that you just described him that makes a lot of sense too is the way in which again he's able to form very interesting relationships. From you know again, you know Tyrion as we were just talking about mm-hmm. to Bronn, um, to Brienne, to right? Brienne most yeah. especially. Like he's open to these types of relationships with you know, you know people that that are kind of odd in the general mores of society. Yeah, they're on, they're Tyrion sort of Brienne. on the margins themselves, even though yeah. they are sort of various in the way that they are marginalized. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, hey, Jason, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for revisiting this really important moment in the book with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. No, I, um, I first received your invitation. I was, you know, you know what we're going to say, I'm talking about. And then the, the format focused on just like one chapter. But then once I you know, reread the chapter, uh, I was like, oh, yeah, there's a lot here to unpack. And. Uh, and it, it, it's been a very enjoyable conversation. And, it's one uh, of the things that makes this this podcast work is that you can do one. You can, you can easily talk about one chapter for two hours. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> you could easily we could easily go on for another hour at this point. And, but of course we, <laughs> and it's such a short chapter. Yeah, no, this is definitely enjoyable, and uh, certainly, yeah. Please keep in mind for you know, other chapters that come up and where you think, you know, especially now that you've, you know, kind of heard some of my musings on various things, you know, as a <laughs> medievalist, as an ethicist, um, I don't think there's much, there, there, there's, there's some, bi- I mean, some of the things you touched on today with like the bastards and stuff, it's kind of bioethical, um, you know, the, or, or biopolitical, let's say. Yeah, um, that's right. So yeah, anything where, where you, where you think, uh, uh, I'd be a good conversation partner. Please, uh, please feel free to reach out. I'd love to do this again. Absolutely. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. And now Steve and I cover the laws of gods and men. This is the Tyrion at trial episode. It also includes that scene with Davos and Stannis at the bank. In addition to that, Drogon eats goats. Here is comic Steve Osborne. Steve, I'm going to ask you a question that gets asked a lot in the fandom. Okay. And... You can answer this however you like, but the reason why I'm asking you is because I think I finally have my own answer. So I'm asking you, but really I just, this is just a platform for me to talk a little bit. So just what we've been doing so far. Yeah, that's, that's the premise. Sure. Yeah. So you're pretty familiar with the world of ice and fire uh, now. Yeah, I'm in there. Uh, if you were going to take a vacay anywhere in this world, where would you like to go? Um, Anywhere, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, anywhere where Sir Davos isn't. Because <laughs> I would think I would just like a little bit of peace and quiet, please. <laughs> See, this is exactly where I was going. I was going to say, I just want to follow around Solidar Son. All day. Yeah. he. This guy is having the most fun of anyone in the entire show. Yeah, he seems to be. like He doesn't want to be interrupted with the trappings of, of much that isn't his own doing, right? Everyone else has problems. The, if he could just stay away from Davos. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the thing is, is that, like, I think it's one of those things where it's like, look, I don't mind even, like, going to some sort of battle with you. If you just, could you could you be on a different ship? <laughs> if I hear it, look, yeah, I get it. Your fingers, they got cut off. I Okay, bro. <laughs> I wonder if there's anyone that doesn't know his fingers got cut off. <laughs> it's like, it's not enough to just say, that, like, oh, don't take my word for it. Here they are aggressively in your face. There's a couple of wild lanes up, like, north of Craster's Keep. Have you heard of Davos? You mean the guy who's got his fingers cut off? Yeah, him. And he's got about 13,000 stories to go, which is about any circumstance. <laughs> they all usually start with, look, I'm not a learned man. So he's the frozen caveman lawyer of Westeros. <laughs> yeah. So I love I love Salador San, and I love him for a number of reasons. Number one, he's living his best life. Sure. I, I can't imagine his wife is very happy, but he seems to be quite happy. Uh, everyone's heard his of... wife is essentially the Vera from Cheers <laughs> yeah, of, uh, right. of Game of Thrones. That's right. That's right. It'd be great if we found out that she was played by the same actress. <laughs> yeah, just her feet. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I like him a lot. I'm not a big fan of pirates, just in general. You love ships, uh, but. I, I could be on his ship with them. I'm sure if you know if I so is is it because of your deep respect for ships that the idea that there would be people that would take other people's ships it just feels somehow like it's it runs contrary to your to your passion. Yeah, I've never seen Salador San actually, you know, do any piracy. All I've seen him do is just have conversations with Davos. Yeah, that would be the spinoff no one wants. Or Davos, Davos is the host of a, of a late night talk show, and like nobody gets to pitch their movie. <laughs> uh, he's got to have more jokes than just that one, right? Maybe not. That's his and one go to move. But it is kind of a it's kind of a poetic moment, right? Like, because I'm mean, like, here's a, here's a joke that everybody's heard, and he's a pirate, so he steals jokes. He's he's a joke pirate. See, maybe he's not even a real pirate. He's that's why he's reluctant to go on this little journey because he's like, I, don't, I get seasick. I uh, <laughs> I bootleg movies, man. When when everyone calls me a pirate, it's just because I've been bootlegging movies at the theater. <laughs> See, if Davos would shut up for like five minutes, <laughs> stop talking about his fingers, he might actually find know. out that his best friend isn't a real pirate. He's like, now come to think of it, I don't think I've ever, I've, I've never been on a ship with you. <laughs> that reminds me of a story. Look, I'm not a learned man. <laughs> Sir Davos the Anecdotal. I don't think I've ever seen a, a scene like this in like a sort of a swashbuckling fantasy epic where it's just two guys waiting in a bank for hours. Right. That was a nice touch. I kind of like the idea of like, it sort of, you know, it, it does sort of answer a question like, did they just have endless supplies of everything? <laughs> well, sometimes you do, and I think that when the plot needs you to have endless supplies of everything, you do, right? You do, it's but ammunition. I think like a little a scene like this is a nice nod to, yeah, someone's paying for this, and if you don't, if you can't tell the right story to the right guy, then he's not going to give you the money. Yeah, and it does add another layer, right? Because in a sense, the scene sort of neuters all the the kingdoms in a way. Because there's this sense of like, you know, you get so caught up in the, uh, you know, this quest for the Iron Throne. Um, 
but in the background, you know, there's they're all going to end up being dependent on this this bank. Yeah, these right? bankers I, are like totally unimpressed with anything that's happening in Westeros. Right. They don't care who wins as long as somebody wins cuz that's that's the investment, right? Because of their indifference, does it raise the stakes or lower the stakes? Um, I mean, in a sense, it does lower the stakes because it's like, yeah, actually, Cersei's not that important, or Joffrey's death is not that important worldwide. Right. Yeah, and I think that that and that becomes a very like so so the yeah I mean they're jockeying for so much cultural capital that the actual capital can be forgotten in all of it. Right. I mean, it's mm-hmm. you cut off if you can cut off a resource. Right. It's it's like settlers of Catan essentially. If you can cut off a resource, then you can kind of render someone's ability to to expand their kingdom, you know, kind of moot. So there's a a kind of a meta narrative happening in this scene because, it, according to Davos, if you can just tell the right story in the right folksy tone, then you can kind of win the. <laughs> Certainly, room. all in on that strategy, right? Yeah. Well, that's that's what he. I've been training for this my whole life. That's his superpower. His superpower. Is to tell a folksy story and to make friends at the end of it. His superpower is the filibuster. That's <laughs> right. right. So, but these bankers are trying to say, look, your stories don't impress us. The only stories that we care about are the numbers on the page. Yeah. But in the end, Davos wins, right? Right. Well, he wins something. So, so the the lesson to be had from this is that even the bankers, if you can tell the right story to the right people, the story will help you win the war. Mm-hmm. In the same way that like any kind of propaganda is going to sort of be important for the common folk, the bankers kind of need to be lobbied as well. Yeah, interesting that that's Davos's gig, right? Like, I mean, it's like because I mean, I've 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 worked in the you know medical device industry and then i'm not an engineer but i work with a lot of engineers and it's really important for me to sort of translate for engineers um just because they're not they're not great at you know negotiating dressing or addressing people doing are you saying that engineers don't have people skills steve that's a hot take (laughs) i know it is a hot take but yeah but, but that's the thing right so like so like you have a stannis there who's probably not gonna sit there and spin a yarn He's just probably gonna growl, and uh, and it's a great growl. It's a very effective. Or growl. Or not even growl. Sometimes it's just a look. Like he'll just yeah. he'll just look daggers at you, and that's all. Yeah, that's it. Gives you the old Stannis eye. Yeah. Drogon likes his goats. Apparently, and he likes and and a dramatic entrance. I was gonna say, if not for Drogon, this episode has zero magic. Zero magic, huh? I think so. Yeah, I think I think you might be right. And not only that, zero magic. I mean, Drogon is clearly magic, but he's in a scene for like, what, 10 seconds, if that. Yeah. Zero magic, zero Starks. No Starks in this episode. Not a Stark to be found. Talk about the Starks. They're mentioned. There's talk about the Stark. There's talk about Sansa. This, I guess this episode is really sort of memorable for Tyrion's trial, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, and it, what's kind of interesting about it, too, is like, you know, we've, we've grown up with a lot of um, courtroom dramas on TV. Yeah. Theater. Yeah. 
And uh, this one doesn't spend as much time in the courtroom, really. LA, so. LA Law. This was kind of the exactly. the LA Law episode, or the Perry yeah, Perry Mason. You're waiting for Corbin Burnson to come in and <laughs> wow the jury. I would love to see a Blair Underwood appearance. <laughs> so Steve, back in the day, famously, Luke Skywalker, when he finds out that Darth Vader is his father, transforms <laughs> into a marsupial. Yes. And it's a thing to behold. His face contorts itself in such a way that he's no longer human. And this is pre-CGI, so that's even more impressive in terms of the skill set that Hamill had. Yeah, and I think it actually broke several makeup artists. <laughs> yeah. They saw it and they're just like, well, that's it. That We're done. Well, the, And this is the fun fact about Empire Strikes Back is like a lot of people said, oh, it was delayed because he was in a car accident. So that's why they wrote the whole Hoth sequence. What happened was is they actually filmed the sequence where he transforms his face first yeah. and it just blew his face out. <laughs> and so they had to, they had to, that's when they wrote the Hoth scene and they had to do a whole beginning sequence. Like we got to explain this. Cause I mean, it was like, my understanding is there were three takes first take to like, Oh boy, that's intense. Can you bring it up a notch? Second take to like, wow, that is incredible. Like his eye actually started to dislodge. And then the third take, they said, just go for it. And his face was everywhere and they had to put it back together. See, see, when they did the that's, CGI... That's why he got the nickname Mark Shrapnel. When they did the recent CGI uh, Luke Skywalker on Disney+, right. Plus, they really should have done the the sprained face. Mark yeah, it's just, it's just sort of like, it's constantly moving. It's like just sort of this fluid face. <laughs> well, the reason I bring it up is that Tyrion's face does a nice little transformation. It does, right. And Almost reminiscent. I mean, they kind of foreshadowed this when they called him a demon monkey, but we actually got to see him transform yeah. into something that's not quite human in this scene. He does a lot of face work in this episode. Oh, for sure. Partially, this has to do with Shay walking in the room and being a total surprise, right? So, Right. And Especially, which is great. I mean, what a, what a, a scene, too, right? Because you feel like you're like... You're already building to this kind of like ugh moment, right? Like he's going to mm. end up going to the wall and Jamie giving up his oath for this. Even if they don't pull a twist of any sort, you're already kind of like you're invested in like, how is this going to turn out? Is something going to change? But then then they call the surprise witness. Yeah. And it just throws the whole thing out of whack. Cause you're like, well, how was this going to go down? And you've already seen uh, Varys seemingly sell him out and, Right. And I think it's this is a great episode wherein there's a little bit of truth in all of these testimonies. You know, yeah. Cersei does tell, you know, d does pretty much quote him word for word. Pycelle does say that he's gone to jail or whatever. You know, he was wrongly imprisoned. Varys, you know, Varys says very little. You know, basically... Varys is just, so just just enough. That's kind of his thing. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Varys says just enough of the truth to be misleading. And so here we have all of these people using the truth and sprinkling in enough falsehood or withholding enough of the context to totally screw Tyrion. And then when she walks in, it's like, oh, this is it. This is this is going to be his undoing. 
And I want to talk a little bit about Tyrion's, I guess, his intelligence or whatever. Because I think that there was a... I think that there was an accusation of the narrative for the later seasons that Tyrion kind of gets stupid. Mm. I think that maybe that maybe that does have some merit. However, Tyrion's always had this weak point when he falls in love. So, you know, his backstory is that he, he you know, he he falls in love with this girl named Taisha and basically he ends up being completely fooled by his brother or his father or both. And the whole thing ends really tragically. Falls in love with Shay. Anyway, I guess the whole point is that Tyrion is very intelligent, but when he falls in love, he can be really stupid. And I think what ends up happening with Shay is that because he's still in love with her, he's just seething with resentment. He's seething with disappointment. It's, it's bringing back everything and all of these, all of his backstory. He's just this raw nerve at this point. And I think he acts really stupidly. Well, so he gets, so, so I'll, I'll go maybe take a, a slightly different take on that. Right. So it's like you say, behave stupidly, I would say, and maybe this is the definition of stupid in this particular world. He uh, allows himself to be hopeful. Um, I, he strikes me as somebody because of his, you know, because of his uh, physical stature and reputation for being sort of this monster throughout uh, the land, um, he'd sort of given up the idea that he can do much of anything else other than use his intellect. And that includes his heart. So if there's ever a moment, mm. and he's mm. had apparently two in his life, where he he has the opportunity to actually use his heart and and believes that it's it's actually a true feeling and a true thing. And then, then now he gets a glimpse of hope that he may not necessarily ever have to be introduced to and hope not just for, you know, for goodness, but like goodness in, in himself. And that there's another element of like, there's more to him than just his intellect perhaps. And, and whether or not that's defined as, as stupid is, is maybe debatable, but it, it certainly does let one's guard down. But that could also be a valuable thing and in some degree, because if he's always operating on the notion of, you know, trying to trying to manipulate or, or manage things or and manage people, to not ever be able to press into that hope also takes out that opportunity to to utilize that with other people. Now, when you say hopeful, do you mean hopeful in that he really honestly believed that Shay loved him back. Right. And so in there is a hopefulness that that his future isn't always just tied strictly to the one thing that he believes he can offer, right? That that there's a more of a diverse skill set and that includes the ability to be loved. And it's one thing to give love, it's another thing to receive love. And to get that is something that, you know, I mean I I think that could render most anybody quote stupid. But at the same time, it's like for somebody who's just been so devoid of that, but he obviously has the capacity to give it, the ability to take it is going to be something that that you're going to want to chase, right? I mean, you're going to want that to be a reality. So another take on this would be, this is exactly what he wants, because he knows he's gotten out. Um, But he can't, he can kind of see that this is what Tywin wants, is probably what he's wanted all along. You know, Tyrion, not a problem anymore. And Jamie, the heir of Castle Rock or whatever. And Tyrion's thinking, well, I'll just die. 
I, I just, I, this is what I want. This is the, the lowest of the low. I'm not, I'm going to sacrifice my life just to make sure of my father. Right. When then also, because this is, this is his father once again, using, you know, it, it appearing to be like, this is the second time in my life I've been in love. The first one was a ruse. This one I believed was real. Here's my father again, sort of pulling the strings to, to show that that's, that's not real. And he's like, this is my father. Like whether he goes to the wall or whether he is, you know, beheaded, whatever it is, he's, he, he's already considered himself dead. Right. I mean, what's the point? And you add to it, you're like, well, I was hopeful that I was, I, I at least could have gone to the wall knowing that I had experienced love in my life. And if that's going to be pulled out from underneath, it's like, well, then what's the point? All of my intellect still brought me to this point. All of my hopefulness for love still brought me to this point. Um, I'd make the argument that he's like, look, I'm going to go out swinging the best that I can. I've already got my death sentence. I'm going to ruin my father's plans. That's the best thing I can take out of this because I'm already condemned. So Mm -hmm. I see it as, you know, still a level of intelligence, right? Because he could have just taken, taken it and go, okay, well, I'll just survive. But then it's like, but yeah, but then my father wins and I don't have love and I'm going to die anyway. No, forget that. I'm getting, I got one last, one last card to play. I'm going to play it. And, and he does. And I, so to me, I, I just, I guess I didn't see it the same way as, as, as a stupid move. I guess I saw it as kind of like, uh, uh, he's, he's empty in the arsenal at this point. Let's talk about Shay. Okay. Option one, she never really loved Tyrion. Uh, and so as soon as he lets her go, she gets, you know, she gets paid off by Tywin or whatever. She's going to say whatever she's going to say because mm-hmm. she's all about the money. Option two, she did fall in love with Tyrion, and then when he threw rocks at her and said, run away, she took it personally. And she so now she's getting back at him. Option C, her life is in jeopardy. She you know, Tywin or whoever, Cersei, whatever, has basically said, If you want to live, here's what you're gonna say. So what do you or is it a combination of That's a tough one, right? Because that's because it is it it um you know, and this maybe is a, is a good example of the show sort of taking the audience on a journey at the same time, right? Like where I was hopeful that that relationship was authentic. So to see it sort of unravel in his time of need brings up all those questions, right? Because you're like, well, wait a minute. You know, I have a hard time, you know, because in my mind, like we kind of went on the journey and it made, and like she had to know that even when he's like, get out of here and all that, that she had to know on some level that that was him protecting her and, and trying to, you know, just to demonstrate his love in a very sacrificial way to a certain degree, you know? And then, so now you're caught with, well, was she kind of dense maybe, maybe she was sort of daft in that she seemed more clever than someone who wouldn't catch that, but maybe I, I gave her too much credit. And then there's the survival thing, which also sort of feels like, yeah, but I mean, you know, what are you willing? Well, she also throws Sansa under the bus, too. Right, and that's an interesting moment, too, because that's where it feels like, okay, wait, so something else has got to be going on here, right? I mean, the way that she was sort of prioritized Sansa, there would have been no real reason to, to do that. Yeah, she's clearly a star witness. They've got all of this evidence and testimony that kind of fits together, but they really need her narrative to kind of tell right. that whole story. Again, with the story theme. Yeah, so it's just so that part is it's that's it's a hard one to sort of wrestle with, right? And it's and the impact sort of 
becomes the focus. I, I feel like he always had the trial by combat card ready to play. And that was kind of like the nuclear option, right? Yeah, it's worked out for him before. Yeah, so I kind of was thinking that like, okay, this is... You know, it wasn't like an aha moment, but it was probably like, look, if I've got like, I I know I can do this. And if if things aren't going to work out, you know, and who knows, he may have already had that. Like, that's the other thing is I don't know that he didn't wouldn't have had that already at play, even though Jamie sort of worked a plea deal for him. Because like, I don't know that that going to the wall is going to turn out good for him. And I think he knows that. Right. So I think any scene that has Charles dance in it. It's just right. going to be amazing. Um, unless it's the golden child. Is he in the golden child? <laughs> and he wasn't good in the golden No, was it him it's a great who question. was good, and for some reason this he is, was just a great question child. to ask, is to find out, is the golden child better or worse because of Charles Dance? <laughs> because a lot of people would say, well, gee, I just assumed it wasn't very good. I didn't realize that there was another option here. I See, I think... I think that if he was in more scenes in The Golden Child. He's like the main villain, right? I want to see him in every scene. <laughs> you want him to play Eddie Murphy? You want you want Golden Child to be Charles Dance's clumps? He plays every I character. I want him to also play... <laughs> you, find out that, you find out that Eddie Murphy came up with the idea for the clumps to play all these different roles and coming to America and all that from Charles <laughs> Dance playing him in The Golden Child. This scene with Tywin and Jamie, it's just what I mean, everything about that scene is fantastic. The way it's shot, the way the cameras are, the way that Charles Dance is just sitting there eating as if yeah, it's just as, you know, just having lunch, nothing. It's just like a day at work for him. He just he's on his lunch break. <laughs> <laughs> And his son is, it's like everything, it's like everything is on the line for Jamie. Jamie is about, he's about to give up everything he's ever wanted in life, right? Yes, I'll give up my career of choice. I'll marry some woman who I don't love. I'll move back to the rock and be Mr. Respectable. You know, he's willing to give up everything he's ever wanted. And, uh, And his dad's like... All right, sounds fine. <laughs> the just the the disparity between those two in that scene is just remarkable. Yeah, it's pretty great. I mean, that yeah. I think a lesser actor may kind of try to rise to the occasion and meet the emotionality of the right. other actor. No, that's a good. That's a really good point, right? I mean, like he's uh, by doing so much less, it creates a much more rich character and how he's responding to this situation. And it shows just like. At the end of the day, it's like, look, I care about you because you're you're my name. Yeah, yeah, he is. He's an extension of Tywin, and if he's not going to be an extension of Tywin, then he's not worth anything. And and you know what? If even if Jamie had never walked in the room, Tywin may have just sent Tyrion right. to the wall. I mean, it could have that could have happened without Jamie giving up anything. So Tywin was like about to win the chess match anyway. Yeah, Jamie Lannister was kind of like you know late 80s, early 90s warriors, where they're like, hey, we want to trade down in the draft and we'll give you more. And like, what? <laughs> so, so you want Todd Fuller. Yep, that's who we want. Yeah, so we, and we're going to give you our pick and cash. And you're like, but, I mean, you could just take them right there. It's like, nope. It's too early to take them, so we want to move down. Like, but, Okay. <laughs> 
Here are the highlights coming up this week on Bald Move. Our coverage of Hot D, Fire and Blood, and the 1980s Shogun miniseries continues. But then on Tuesday, for the first time in 35 years, we asked a question. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Hop aboard the train to Toontown as we revisit this incredible blending of live action and animation to see if it still holds up all this time later. Then on Wednesday, we get our first look at Blake Crouch's mind-bending sci-fi series, Dark Matter. The first two episodes drop simultaneously on Apple TV+, and we'll have a pair of podcasts, quantumly linked, ready for you to observe. You can find these and many other great podcasts by searching for Bald Move Pulp or Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. Hey, it's time for another season of Why is Mr. Feeney a Car? The premise is simple. A Gen Xer and a millennial watch old 80s action TV to see what still works and what doesn't. In previous seasons, we've done podcasts for Knight Rider, Airwolf, MacGyver, A-Team, and more. However, this year we're doing a very special season of Feeney. We're going back and reviewing the very special episodes of 80s and 90s sitcoms. Come cringe along with us as Hollywood tries to warn our families of the dangers of underage smoking, drug abuse, alcoholism, eating disorders, and much more. We start out with the episode of Boy Meets World where a high school kid gets sucked into a cult. Worlds collide as the Mr. Feeney finally makes an appearance on Why is Mr. Feeney a Car? Join me and my buddy Jay each week for episodes full of nostalgia and secondhand embarrassment. And don't worry, a very special isn't your speed. We've also got some all-time classic Knight Rider episodes to close the season with. Find Why is Mr. Feeney a Car? each Wednesday on Bald Move Pulp starting April 3rd. We're about 10 weeks out from House of the Dragon Season 2, and it's time to prepare for war. Which in our case means, well, watching a lot of Hot D and reading a lot of Fire and Blood. Each week between now and June 16th, Maester Anthony and his co-host Steve are hosting a watch of each episode of Hot D Season 1. And then me and Jim are going to host a discussion of the differences between the events on that episode and how they're recounted in George R.R. Martin's historical tome, Fire and Blood. That's right, I've resorted to reading dragon books. God help us all. We'll see if my fresh eyes add any new insights or predictions into Season 2. Arm yourselves with all the lore you can for the battles ahead. House of the Dragon returns June 16th, but we've got you covered until then. Check out all of our upcoming Hot D coverage on the Hot D feed or on Bald Move Pulp, available wherever you listen to podcasts. For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'd like to talk about ethnic representation on screen. I recently watched The Chair, the new Sandra Oh series on Netflix. I was initially skeptical. Based on the first episode, I could see that the show wasn't going to be as authentic as it could have been in depicting university politics. But the characters, the plot, and especially the themes hooked me. No, it wasn't especially authentic, but it absolutely captured the essence of university life. And this got me thinking about HBO's Game of Thrones for two reasons. First, authenticity is always subjective, and I had to get over myself, including my expectations, in order to enjoy the show. 
I imagine medical doctors have had to do the same sort of thing for years whenever hospitals are depicted on screen. The second reason that the chair reminded me of Game of Thrones was because our old friends Weiss and Benioff are listed as producers on the chair. On this second point, I'll admit that my reaction was cynical. After all, Weiss and Benioff were hit hard over ethnic representation in Game of Thrones. They were hit from the left by people like me for not showcasing more diversity and for how they showcased diversity when they did. They're hit from the right by folks who wanted some sort of faux, authentic dream of an all-white medieval cast. Even so, Weiss and Benioff were probably hit harder from people on my side of the aisle. So to my cynicism. When I saw their names attached to the chair, I immediately thought that this was an attempt to rehabilitate their image. I mean, how involved were they really in the production of the show? Or was it just that they were throwing their weight behind it for some sort of political sanitation? But then I caught myself, why shouldn't they be admired for putting their Game of Thrones weight behind a series like The Chair, even if it was calculated, so what? I liked The Chair, and I'm glad it attracted established producers. And who am I to begrudge Weiss and Benioff for whatever journey they're on and how long it took them to arrive at their own wisdom? One more thing about representation. Creating a sense of authenticity is indeed a factor in fantasy and sci-fi narratives on screen, but it shouldn't supersede the ethics of production the ethics of casting and storytelling, etc. Another example, Hugh Jackman doesn't look or dress like Wolverine. Jackman isn't short enough, and his superhero garb isn't yellow enough. But the color of the outfit didn't seem to matter to fans. Or at least I didn't hear any outcry over color in that case. I also didn't hear much outcry over the fact that Sean Astin was too pale to play Samwise Gamgee. For those of us nerdy enough to know that Samwise is a Harfoot, we might ask, why wasn't he darker? Like I said, so-called authenticity is highly subjective. Most importantly, there are historic power dynamics behind these decisions. When we watch these shows, whether we want to admit it or not, we are participants in these dynamics. And that's all for this week.